Ahoy, Ice Coffee listeners. I've been looking forward to speaking about Douglas Mawson because Douglas Mawson's second foray south saw the first heavier-than-air aircraft taken to Antarctica. Recall that both Scott and Drygalski made tethered balloon ascents, kicking off aviation in Antarctica in 1902. But as anyone with any interest in aviation will recognise, balloons are a stupid way to gain altitude, and that gaining lift by moving an aerofoil through the air, rather than by taking advantage of density differences in bodies of gas, is what flying is really all about. Balloons might look pretty and peaceful, but if you want to go somewhere, bet on the flying machine that offers control over more than one direction of motion. After all this skiting about how great heavier-than-air flying machines are, the result of Mawson's taking the first airframe south are less than stellar, but that's getting ahead of the narrative. Just know that I am very keen on my aviation, and excited about Mawson's first voyage as an expedition leader, in part because he took an aircraft with him. Dr. Douglas Mawson already featured in the Ice Coffee series as the physicist on Shackleton's Nimrod expedition, during which time he sought and pretty much nailed down, as much as you can nail down a meandering geophysical phenomenon, the South Magnetic Pole. He also turned up in episodes about Scott's preparations for the BAE Mark III, when he turned down the offer of Chief Geologist because of his dislike for Dr. Wilson, and because he couldn't convince Scott to drop him on the coast west of Cape Adair. For Mawson's money, Scott's focus on the South Geographic Pole detracted from the inherently valuable aspects of exploring the Antarctic and determined that no time or resources would be allocated to that goal in his own nascent plans for an expedition. As it turned out, Scott's own initiatives to explore the region west of Cape Adair during the BAE Mark III came to very little as the Eastern Party, after becoming the Northern Party, couldn't break out from Robertson Bay due to significant mountains and insignificant sea ice, and the Terra Nova couldn't sail close enough to allow much charting of the coast due to inclement weather and inconvenient ice conditions. While recent expeditions put a lot of effort into exploring the Ross Quadrant and, what by this point was being referred to as the American Quadrant, Clemens Markham's all-British nomenclature having been chucked as his influence over such matters ebbed, Huge gaps in our knowledge of Antarctica's physical presence to the south of Australia remained, illuminated only by the span traversed by de Montdevere's expedition seven decades earlier. Mawson's desire to return south was, in part, driven by his family's financial struggles through his childhood. His father's farming efforts failed, leading to low-paid accounting work, this income supplemented by his mother taking boarders, Douglas Mawson's life was characterised by attempts to secure financial security in geological deposits or patents for extraction processes. Where Antarctica presented opportunities to enhance national prestige to the leaders of the four other expeditions of the 1912 confluence, and opportunities to enhance personal reputations and fortunes for Scott and Amundsen, it represented potential wealth in its own right to Mawson. The geology and biology lying south of his homeland, might secure his nation, and himself, the chance to breathe easy on the money front. Further spurs to find his fortune applied when Mawson fell in love with Paquita Del Pratt, daughter of a wealthy mining engineer. At the time Douglas Mawson turned down Scott's proffered head geologist role, Sir Ernest Shackleton partnered with the Australian for his own proposed expedition in parallel with Scott's, and began raising funds.
Using Shackleton's connections and Mawson's enthusiastic promotion of the potential mineral wealth lying in wait to the west of Cape Adair, the pair quickly raised £10,000. But Shackleton lost interest as exciting prospects in Hungarian gold mines came on his radar, which likely surprised him, seeing his radar lay 30 years in the future. Mawson was forced to start from scratch. Frustrated but undaunted, he made his first scratch at a meeting of the Australasian Association for the Advancement of Science in Sydney on the 7th of January 1911. Playing the proximity card by claiming that all of the Antarctic lying to the south of Australia, and any wealth it might provide, must logically belong to the nation nearest it. He played the science card by highlighting the benefits to farmers and the national economy on offer if the expedition led to a better understanding of Australia's notoriously damaging but hard to predict droughts. He played the jingoism card by highlighting that a failure to do anything to investigate that southern domain might see other nations lay claim to it by right of exploration or occupation. The association voted Mawson a thousand pounds and established a committee presided over by Orm Masson and chaired by Edgeworth David, to oversee the scientific program. Perhaps Mawson encouraged committees in a Lord Veterinary-level cunning move to keep interfering busybodies in on the funding drive and out of his way in actual decision-making, because he was certainly determined to run this expedition with as little interference from government and sponsors as possible. He took donations, but not instructions, from newspaper and tobacco magnate Hugh Dennison. Other donors came on board on the promise of a share of any mineral wealth arising as a result of the expedition, but the coffers weren't living up to the £48,000 projected as covering all contingencies. Mawson would have to choke down his distaste for government involvement. The committee asked for federal funding, but with several key members of the government in England to attend the coronation of King George V, no response could come in the short term. The University of Adelaide showed considerable largesse in letting Mawson out of his teaching duties for what couldn't help but turn out to be a long campaign, and Mawson sailed to Britain, where he stayed with Kathleen Scott, and restricted his fundraising activities to approaching wealthy Australian expats to try to avoid raising the ire of Scott's supporters and, in their wake, Britain itself. His efforts met with little success, and he gave Kathleen Scott notice that he would need to make a call for public subscriptions, offering to delay starting this campaign for a month to give her own public fundraising efforts a clear field. Once Mawson's public campaign got underway, Shackleton, who'd misplaced the £10,000 already raised in concert with Mawson, used his contact at the Daily Mail, Lord Northcliffe, to help the Australian run the campaign for donations, netting money, equipment and stores to the value of £12,000. This was a big boost, but given that it might have totaled almost double this if Shackleton wasn't a shady scoundrel, in the nicest and most charming way possible, the formerly warm friendship was never quite the same. And you get no prizes for identifying the person making the most noise about funds that should be going to Scott's expedition. If you named anyone other than Sir Clements Markham, I want you to go to the back of the headphones and have a long, hard think about paying attention when I'm podcasting to you. Reginald Skelton threw his two cents in too, writing to Scott that he should ignore anyone suggesting the region to the west of Cape Adair constituted Mawson's ground, because Scott held priority to the whole region in the first place.
and anyone who associated with Shackleton couldn't get haughty about what is right and proper. What? Mawson requested a thousand pounds from the Royal Geographical Society, but they only released half of that, and their efforts to draw money from donors, already touched for Scott's two expeditions, didn't bring much to the party. The British government contributed £2,000 at the insistence of Australia's Governor-General, Lord Denham, but refused to grant Mawson authority to make territorial claims on the behalf of Britain. This permission being a major reason for Mawson's travelling to Britain, this felt like something of a kick in the teeth, and Mawson resolved to make claims, with or without, official imprimatur. Mawson purchased a ship, a Dundee sealer, built in 1876 and working extensively as a whale ship out of Newfoundland, prior to Mawson's purchase. Square rigged on the foremast and schooner rigged on the main and mizzen, the Aurora also featured a 98 horsepower compound steam engine. The bow was solid timber and armoured with steel plate. Mawson engaged his friend, John King Davis, who served as first mate aboard the Nimrod during Shackleton's expedition to Antarctica, and later sailed the vessel back to the UK as captain, as his captain and two IC of the expedition overall. Also known to Mawson from his time under Shackleton, Frank Wilde joined the expedition for his wealth of experience and for his well-earned reputation as a pragmatic and effective leader. The Australasian Antarctic expedition picked up a member from Shackleton's abortive efforts to return south, British Artillery Lieutenant Belgrave Ninnis. Mawson originally intended taking only citizens of Commonwealth nations, but an application from a Swiss glaciologist, Dr Xavier Mertz, offered something almost no one in the British Empire could bring to the table. Expert ski instruction. The expedition had found its trig vigran. William Spears Bruce happily provided Mawson with advice about equipment, victuals and operations, and installed the same Lucas sounding machine he used aboard the Scotia, and later mounted on a sledge for measurements made through the sea ice around Laurie Island, on the Aurora's forecastle. Support and advice also came in from Jean Charcot, Adrien de Gerlache, Sir John Murray, and John Buchanan, the chemist aboard the Challenger during its three-year voyage, and Prince Albert of Monaco. While staying with Kathleen Scott, Mawson took on board her recommendation that he take an aircraft south with the Australian expedition. Kathleen's suggestion was about generating public enthusiasm for the expedition, giving Mawson a first he could cite as a feather in the cap of his endeavour, and it could also serve as a funding generation by providing exhibition flights before embarkation. Mawson writes about the idea more in terms of the airframe providing a means to extend the horizon to see further than ship and dog teams might and perhaps even to transport men and materials to remote sites quickly. Is anyone in the audience getting a tingling in their embryonic technology as yet untested in high latitudes sensors? Reginald Skelton certainly did, writing to Scott that he thought the idea silly, as aviation was still very much in its adumbral phase, and that the machinery couldn't possibly be up to the conditions it was likely to face in the south. I think he was on to something, though he might not fully have realised the accuracy of his Cassandering until news of Scott's death and the factors contributing to it, including the poor performance of his sledging tractors, reached Britain. Mawson purchased a Vickers REP monoplane fitted with skis on a thousand pounds credit 
and engaged Army pilot Hugh Evelyn Watkins to fly it. Frank Bickerton was one of the first people to study aeronautical engineering at the City and Guilds College, London. He came to Mawson's attention through companion to Mawson and Edgeworth David during their trek to the South Magnetic Pole, Alastair Mackay, and signed on as mechanic for the aircraft. Like Filchner's Deutschland, the Aurora would carry radio equipment. The ship itself would have a radio receiver, but would also carry materials for the erection of large aerials and powerful transmitters on Macquarie Island and the continent shore, so the Australians could broadcast their progress home in a radio-telegraphic relay. Mawson planned on establishing an additional two bases along the coast, though these auxiliary winter quarters would not have their own transmitters. The four bases would collect meteorological data and survey unknown areas at scales previously never attempted, regardless of what rhetoric to that effect previous expedition leaders and backers might have applied to the matter. Mawson felt angry at Scott for his sudden interest in an area he previously refused to countenance work in, and at himself for trusting and being sold out on by yet another polar luminary. Scott suddenly became interested in Cape Adair when Mawson discussed the ground he wanted to examine, and announced plans for his own expedition's forays beyond Robertson Bay. While news of the Eastern Party's sojourn at Cape Adair wouldn't come to light until 1912, and Scott hadn't originally intended landing Campbell and his party there, Scott did propose moving his base of operations west of Cape North, if the pole was reached in their first summer ashore. We know, with hindsight, that that was never going to happen, and I doubt Scott seriously thought it could. But having already seen how the British public and press reacted to anyone gainsaying their man Scott, Mawson didn't contest the proposed gazumping, instead reworking his plans to incorporate setting up his main base at any promising rocky shore midpoint on the as-yet-unsurveyed coast and sending auxiliary parties into the further unknown. Mawson left London on the 21st of June, 1911, well late compared to the four other expeditions operating in the south in this period. But without the pole as a goal, this was never a point of stress for the Australian. Shortly before his departure, John Buchanan gave Mawson three bottles of Madeira left over from the Challenger expedition, encouraging the Australian to drink them on Explorer's Day, which was a thing, apparently. Belgrave Ninnis and Xavier Mertz became good friends while charged with caring for the expedition's 49 Greenland Huskies, purchased through the Danish Geographical Society, during the transit to Australia, though Captain Davis had the pair marked down as loafers, bemoaning the neglected state of the animals. I don't know which way to jump with this information, as they seem pretty attentive on their charges in other accounts, and in their subsequent actions. In Australia once more, Mawson met with Minister of Defence, George Pearce, and in addition to highlighting the commercial opportunities possible in whales, seals and minerals, and the scientific opportunities that would see Australia at the forefront of understanding Antarctica, played to the national security concerns, as though that ever gets anyone any traction, by highlighting the dangers enemy bases on Antarctic shores might pose to the nearest substantial landmass should another nation establish ownership before Australia did. During the Australian gold rush, the Russian Pacific fleet was perceived as the greatest threat to Australian sovereignty, 
but the more recent arms race between Britain and Germany, and the trouncing afforded Russia by the recently retooled Japan, allowed Mawson to play up fears of threats posed by Germany and Japan in the south, with Filchner's and Shirase's expeditions forming focal points for Mawson's arguments. A cold contrast to the warm relationship between Mawson's mentor, Edgeworth David, and the Shirase expedition, recounted in episode 42. Pierce took Mawson's request to Prime Minister Andrew Fisher, eventually netting £10,000 from federal coffers, in two instalments of £5,000, the second tranche arising when the expedition looked to be sufficiently well established that the money was not so much risked as invested. Additional money came from state governments. £5,000 from South Australia, £7,000 from New South Wales, and £6,000 from Victoria. Mawson assembled an expedition corps from Australian and New Zealand universities. Lieutenant Robert Beige shipped as astronomer, assistant magnetician and recorder of tides. John Close went as assistant collector. Percy Carell went as mechanic and assistant physicist. Walter Hannam was the wireless operator and wireless mechanic. Alfred James Hodgman went as cartographer. John Hunter went as biologist. Charles Francis Lazeron was the taxidermist and the biological collector. Cecil Madigan was the meteorologist. Archibald McLean was the chief medical officer. Herbert Murphy went in charge of expedition stores. Frank Stilwell was the geologist. George Dovers shipped as a cartographer and Leslie Wetter went as surgeon. Charles Harrison shipped as biologist. Charles Hoadley as geologist. Sidney Jones as a medical officer. Alexander Kennedy as magnetician. Morton Moyes as meteorologist. Andrew Watson as geologist. Leslie Russell Blake as cartographer and geologist. Harold Hamilton as a biologist, Charles Sandell as wireless operator and mechanic, and A.J. Sawyer as wireless operator. Late in the preparations, Frank Hurley, a postcard photographer, was put forward to Mawson by Kodak rep Henry Mallard. Hurley buttonholed Mawson on the train, taking them both to his job interview, and he used the journey to talk his way into a berth and the annals of Antarctic photographic history, though at the time the two men only knew about the birth bit. Henry Mallard, in making the introduction rather than gunning for the photographer role himself, missed out on the opportunities made available to Hurley, but warrants further mention in the narrative as supplying the expedition with photographic equipment and consumables. I'm sure he had good reasons for not going, But it's by such nodes in our personal histories that people sometimes miss out on household recognition by the narrowest margins. And while I know nothing more about Henry Mallard, I like his name, and I like to think favourably of him as a magnanimous type who felt pleased by the career leg up his role in these matters constituted for Frank Hurley. Mawson charged Hurley with documenting the expedition in moving pictures, as well as still images, and the enthusiastic 25-year-old set himself the task learning to use the cinematograph. With 19 scientists in an expedition of 31 people all up, Mawson's Australian Antarctic expedition 
constituted the highest ratio of scientists to tradespeople and seamen of any expedition to date, and the highest number of scientists taken south at once outright. The Carnegie Institute's Terrestrial Magnetism Department put forward magnetician Eric Webb to take dip circle measurements throughout the voyage and to lead a second attempt on the South Magnetic Pole, due to some doubts being cast on the measurements taken during Edgeworth David's attempt to reach the meandering point of maximum dippage. Lawson also sought out the expertise of Ernest Joyce, veteran of the Discovery and Nimrod expeditions, who headed to Sydney to help Mawson with equipment selections and purchases. Mawson's Antarctic trek centred around man-hauling, and Joyce constituted one of the most experienced dog-sledge operators in Britain at the time. In a final push to raise funds, the Vickers monoplane was used as the drawcard for a day out at the Adelaide racecourse. The whole 1910s kit and caboodle was laid on with a marquee and refreshments and... and... That was about it, because the 1910s was pretty shitbox if your idea of a good day out extends beyond a marquee full of scones and tea. But still, the punters turned up on the promise of seeing an aeroplane, and flights in said aeroplane were on offer at £5 a hop. A large sum at the time, but with the Governor of South Australia agreeing to take the first joy flight, likely to draw enough punters as to make the effort on the behalf of the expedition coffers worthwhile. Unfortunately for the coffers, Something went badly awry during the first flight of the day, a final check flight by Watkins and Wilde, to ensure everything was right with the airframe, recently reassembled after being unpacked from the crates in which it arrived in Australia by ship, and into which it would shortly have to be repacked for the voyage to Antarctica. At 500 feet, the plane sideslipped, Watkins only just managing to get the wings level before running out of height and ideas. They climbed again to around 150 feet, but the plane nosedived, hit the ground, and finished up upside down, Wilde and Watkins trapped beneath it and covered in fuel. Fortunately, neither was badly injured, but the airframe would never fly again. The wings were too badly damaged to repair, but the three-cylinder engine and the fuselage and ski gear were salvaged. Mawson, still owing a thousand quid on what now comprised a very inefficient and noisy way of moving along the ground, was well miffed with Watkins, whom he suspected of pissing it up at the Army and Navy Club the night before. Not a single fiver earned, and the plane was written off. Watkins returned to Britain, where he promptly crashed a second time, this perhaps being the reason the Royal Flying Corps overlooked him for airborne service during the First World War. Meanwhile, on the other side of the planet, Captain Davis struggled to get away from London in a timely manner. With the clock ticking on the Antarctic summer sailing season, Docker's strikes and Coronation Hullabaloo slowed progress on refits to the ship and the gathering of stores and equipment. Finally heading down the Thames on the 27th of July, the Huskies set up a howl that lasted several monotonous monotonal hours, making orders difficult to hear and almost causing a collision and incurring many fruity epithets from sailors sharing the river with his example of doggy Doppler effect. It's suspected they were cursing the Aurora and all who sailed on her, it was hard to hear what were the dogs making such a din. En route to Cardiff to bunk coal, a gale put water over the decks, and because one of the repairs Davis had to forego to get away on something resembling time was a recorking of the decks, a great deal of the sea leaked into the living quarters. Further delays at Cardiff with a coal strike saw the Aurora finally leave British shores on the 4th of August. 
More coal and fresh water came aboard at Cape Town, and the Aurora arrived in Hobart on the 4th of November 1911, after a rough transit during which several of the dogs, almost continuously drenched by waves swamping the decks, died, experiencing well-known but as yet unexplained seizures. The remaining dogs and the one surviving puppy of the several litters born while in transit, and Ninnis and Mertz with them, went to Quarantine Island before the ship tied up at Queen's Wharf, berthing fees having been waived by the harbour board. Wilde took charge of the stock take as equipment and stores arrived at the Queen's Wharf warehouse, managing the almost frantic activities that eventually saw a very orderly, colour-coordinated system by which the 5,200 packages and boxes of cargo were denoted for offloading to the various bases the ship was slated to visit. Wilde's colour coding system allowed Captain Davis to stow the cargo in such a way that materials for any base could be reached with a minimum of disturbance to materials for any other base. An unloading could occur in any order, so no fixed sequence of base visits was necessary. The ship received the overhaul it didn't get in London, the shipwrights just keeping ahead of the rising tide of equipment as they worked to get the ship ready at the same time it was loaded. In addition to the Vickers REP waste of deck space, I mean, air tractor, the motor launch and the generators for the radio transmitters, 4,000 gallons of shell benzene and another 1,000 gallons of kerosene were included. No one feeling especially happy about such large quantities of such volatile liquids going aboard a ship about to venture into the Southern Ocean. Shortly before embarking south, Mawson became engaged to Paquita del Pratt. In a less agreeable aspect of the lead-up to his departure, the proposal to establish the radio relay station on Macquarie Island required permission from the Tasmanian government, the island falling under their jurisdiction, and this permission came only five days before the expedition left Hobart on the 2nd of December, governmental reticence contrasting vividly with the enthusiasm of the people thronging the quayside to wish the voyage as well. Something I'd never before registered as necessary but which makes sense when you spend some time thinking on it. The explosives and ammunition were only taken on board from a tender as the ship made its way down the Dontracasto Channel. A brief stop at Quarantine Island brought the dogs, Mertz and Ninnis on board, and an additional 38 dogs, procured by Ernest Joyce, came aboard from a catch. So many dogs and so much equipment, food and radio gear filled the Aurora, that Mawson chartered a second ship, the steam packet Toroa, to carry the majority of the expedition's staff to Macquarie Island, leaving Hobart several days after the Aurora to allow for the more heavily laden vessel to reach the island first and select the best possible site for unloading and setting up the radio relay base. The deck of the Aurora was busy with crew securing cargo and finding stowage for cheeses, chickens and... other stuff as dusk fell and the ship passed into open water and a good thing too as a gale developed during the night and the ship was hove to in huge waves with cargo right up the bulwarks the overloaded ship wallowed for several days particularly large waves stove in the motor launch and tore half the wheelhouse from the ship the officer on watch fortunately occupying the other half at the time The bung capping one of the freshwater tanks in the Aurora's hold sprang during the violent movements imparted by the waves, and a subsequent ingress of seawater sent the tank brackish, 
making it unusable for human consumption and putting the ship on short water rations for the duration of this period of operations. Fortunately, none of the fuel cans broke open, as flooding volatiles is no fun in any circumstances. The Aurora approached Macquarie Island on the 11th of December. A party put ashore at Carolyn Cove to inspect it as a potential landing site. Pleasant as the cove was, those who'd visited the island previously felt the northern bays offered a better aspect and the landing party headed back out to join the Aurora, leaving an emergency supply cache and a camera lens behind. Meanwhile, the Aurora was adrift, Captain Davis letting the offshore wind slowly push the ship clear of the land. Soundings of 400 fathoms gave no hint of the pinnacle rising to within 14 feet of the surface, but the ship's keel found it without such assistance. After the shock of impact and the grating noises as the hull dragged across the rock, everyone aboard experienced considerable apprehension, but with no obvious leaks starting up, the incident was written off as a lucky break, and the magenta pencil came out to amend the chart with a ground truth depth. With the shore party and his sang recovered, Captain Davis ran the Aurora up the east coast of the island to northeast bay, and anchored as close to shore as an unusual onshore wind made prudent eventually relocating to Hustleborough Bay on the other side of the headland, which served the Aurora well as an anchorage, since the prevailing winds gave way to the south-easterly for most of the ship's stay at the island. A recently wrecked schooner rested on the beach, and two huts nestled on the leeward side of the flat-topped lump of geology now known as Wireless Hill. The residents of the hut turned out, turning out to be a crew of resident elephant seal oil sealers, and the maroon crew of the wrecked schooner, the Clyde, torn open on a reef two months earlier. The crew beached their ship before it sank, saving their lives and their cargo of seal oil and pelts, but their existence awaiting rescue on the bitterly cold, miserably wet island made them eager to be away. Mawson negotiated a deal in which the sealers and their cargo would return to Australia aboard the Toroa in exchange for their defraying the cost of its charter. Unloading commenced with the ship's boats ferrying men and materials to the shore. Five men would stay out the southern winter under the leadership of meteorologist George Ainsworth. Bickerton and Gillies repaired the motor launch, damaged in the gale shortly after leaving Hobart, and unloading got underway apace. Construction of the winter quarters hut kicked off in the lee of a large prominence rising from among the tussock grasses. The dogs, much relieved to be off the ship, were tethered on a dog line established among the tussocks, and Ninnis set himself up among the sealers in one of the huts to better tend to his canine charges. Webb joined him there to kick off magnetic observations. The Torah arrived on the 13th of December, Captain Holloman having delayed their departure from Hobart due to the gale that caused the Aurora so much trouble. Fifty sheep went ashore to graze until the Aurora was ready to take them south, and the motor launches and whaleboats established a busy shuttle service, taking equipment and stores from the ships to the shore, taking coal from the Tauroa to the Aurora, and taking seal oil from the shore to the Tauroa. The steam packet, loaded with the sealer's cargo and carrying the crew of the Clyde, departed on the 13th of December. The 300-foot-high flat top of the nearby hill was selected as the optimum site for the wireless masts and hut. 
Transferring the radio materials to the top of the hill was made easier by the use of a flying fox erected by the resident sealers. The term flying fox caused me a great deal of consternation in my youth, as I was always on the lookout for the large, fruit-eating bat when someone tried to draw my attention to the cable and pulley system by which a mass can be moved over rough or steep ground with minimum effort. I don't know the etymology that led to a gravity-operated cable car taking the name of a megabat, but I do know that almost everywhere outside of Australia and New Zealand, it's called a zipline. Almost everywhere else. In South Africa, it's called a foofy slide, which carries a kind of linguistic awesomeness all its own. Wilde instituted some reinforcing on the mechanism to afford safe carriage of the heavy loads at hand, and material was soon being hoisted uphill by means of a counterweight system. A bag attached to the descending side of the cable was filled with earth and rocks at the top of the hill, until it outweighed the cargo on the ascending side. This lifted the cargo effortlessly, but if the counterweight was excessively heavy for the load at hand, the whole assembly worked up quite a speed during its 800-foot ride, and various extremely dangerous mechanisms were devised to try and slow the load as it neared its terminus, Wild being put out of action for several days by an impact imparted by Newtonian physics as applied to levers, weights and pulleys. Primitive as it was, only one load came to grief in the scheme, when the weight of the generator caused the cables to sag to the extent that the load contacted a rock during its ascent, and the resulting bouncing caused the lashing holding the load to the cable to slip. The generator came bouncing back down the hill at the loadmasters below, fortunately not hitting anyone, as it would surely have killed them, making them the first electrical fatality at such a high southerly latitude. The generator came to rest among the tussocks, undamaged but for cracks in the casing, which were later repaired in the engineering workshop established at the main base on the continent, the other generator being drawn up from the Aurora's hold and used at Macquarie Island, where such repairs would have required a lot more gear shuttling. As Wilde's team hoisted the radio station materials up the hill, other expedition members set to work digging the holes into which the mast bases and the dead men, heavy bundles, in this case wooden logs, buried in the earth and unlikely to be drawn back out of their hole by brute force, and not actual dead people, to which the guy wires keeping the masts erect would be seated. With an engine hut, an operator's hut, and the masts themselves, each comprising four sections of Oregon pine, to erect. Wireless Hill was an anthill of activity for the two weeks the Aurora lay offshore. Frank Hurley, realising he'd left his camera lens at Carolyn Cove, headed back overland in company with Harrison the biologist and Hutchinson, one of the maroon sealers. In addition to securing the lens and some photographs of elephant seals and penguin rookeries, Harrison caught some prions for the expedition collection, and Hurley, by means of a well-aimed tin of preserved meat, in place of firearms or the traditional crossbow, killed an albatross. He didn't figure on the weight of such a large bird carried over the twenty or so undulating miles back to the north end of the island and, already burdened with a heavy camera and Harrison's bird and egg specimens, the party made slow progress. Coleridge could have told him those birds were more trouble than they were worth. Hurley's boots gave out, and a twisted tendon sent him lame, further slowing progress. On reaching base once more, Hurley quickly recovered his vim, if not his mobility, and took to photographing the flying fox in action. 
His lameness prevented him climbing the hill for the aerial view, but, ever game to take risks for his art, he sent his camera up in the flying fox barrel and followed it up himself in the next load. During the final days of unloading and winter quarters preparations, the wind went round to the north, forcing the Aurora back to northeast bay, and then the wind shifted again, forcing another ship back to Hasselborough. During these shufflings, the motor launch, kept under tow, was thrown against the Aurora by a wave, and the seams, only recently recorked, burst once more, and the tender was sitting low by the time the anchor dropped. The weather worsened, and the ship dragged its anchor, in spite of the 90 fathoms of chain put out. Davis ordered the anchor weighed, but after vigorous working of the windlass, only chain came up. The heavy anchor was lost, and with the stock of the spare anchor also missing, the Aurora was forced to steam along the coast until the weather eased, all this action taking place while the ship remained short-handed, the bulk of the crew being ashore to help in the construction projects. The motor launch, crewed by Hodgman and Close, bailing against the water coming through the sprung seams, and the longboats were unable to retrieve extra hands due to the surf. The swell from the north arising on the reinstated prevailing wind, and the swell from the east still large after a long blow from that unaccustomed direction. Eventually, Wilde took a longboat with four on the oars and began shuttling the dogs back to the still freeboating Aurora, conditions having eased somewhat, but the surf still making for fairly hairy landings and launches. Mawson joined Wilde for the final shuttle runs to retrieve the last crew and equipment coming south with them, leaving Leslie Blake, Harold Hamilton, Charles Sandell, and A.J. Sawyer under the leadership of George Ainsworth. The Aurora being critically short on fresh water, Davis sailed down the island's coast to Caroline Cove once more, anchoring within its shelter using the spare heavy anchor, its stock replaced by two dead men fitted by the ship's carpenter, and a kedge anchor, the harbour being so narrow that an anchor at the bow and by the stern were necessary to prevent the ship coming to grief on the rocks should the wind come around. With penguin guano fouling the water of the prominent streams, the expeditioners formed a bucket chain up a steep gully to a slow but clean flow of fresh water, by which they filled the barrels waiting below. In the small hours of the morning, the wind did come around and freshened, and Captain Davis was roused from sleep by the officer on watch, just as the ship nudged the rocky coastline. With all hands on deck, hauling on the anchor lines prevented hauling or damage to the rudder or propeller, while the engine was gotten up to working temperature, and the Aurora, cutting free the kedge anchor and with its bower anchor still in mid-water, steamed out of Carolyn Cove and headed south on Christmas Day, 1911. Davis took a heading so as to coincide with the pack in the vicinity of the 158th Eastern Meridian. This goal was based on previous expeditions' observations of prevailing winds and pack movements, Mawson thinking the ship could enter the pack and travel with it, gradually working their way south as leads allowed, until they reached territory south of Australia, as yet unseen, but for the sightings of the Montdevere and the questionable claims of Wilkes. The Aurora encountered icebergs on the 29th of December, but land remained elusive, Wilkes's sightings proving as unreliable for Mawson as they previously did for Ross and Scott. Mawson was heading further into the area traversed by Wilkes than either of his British predecessors, and the sustained absence of Wilkes' claimed land sightings during this foray westward sealed Wilkes' historical fate. 
His name, already synonymous with poor preparation and leadership in maritime circles, now equaled that of Benjamin Morel in terms of fanciful land sightings. Even so, Mawson consistently referred to the region as Wilkes Land in his writing and maps, much to the frustration of those who made subsequent attempts to establish British territorial claims over much of Antarctica. After a week-long dance in the pack, on the 6th of January 1912, the Aurora encountered an ice tongue extending from horizon to horizon, south to north. I'm just going to pause for a moment and catch my breath, because with the arrangements that got the Australasian Antarctic expedition this far kicking off on the 7th of January 1911, I think that apart from anything else he deserves respect for, and we'll come to such matters later, Mawson warrants mad props for conjuring an expedition of this size from the ether and getting it this far in exactly one year. I raise my battered tin mug to you, Sir Douglas. For two days, they sailed around what would later be named the Mertz Glacier, Waddell Seals offering a biological backstop to the glacial ice evidence that land must lie nearby the species not ranging far from the immediate coastal neighbourhood. Mawson's memoir, The Home of the Blizzard, mentions a seal on an ice floe trying to avoid the gaze of a group of grampuses playing in the wake of the ship, expanding my vocabulary with this synonym for orca or killer whales, though when used as a taxonomic term, grampus can only refer to the Risso's dolphin, the genus grampus being monospecific. The leeward side of the glacial tongue, free of pack, revealed a ten-mile-wide bay, rimmed by what was clearly land-bound glacial ice. Binoculars came to the fore and rocky outcroppings, mostly gneisses and schists, according to Mawson, showed. About 50 miles on from the glacier tongue, in a broad sweeping bay, a rocky outcrop that would form their main base of operations was spotted. Further west than Mawson might have liked, as it was a long way from the general location of the South Magnetic Pole, and far enough from Macquarie Island to make radio contact problematic, but with no other ice-free land sighted during the transit, it would have to serve. Mawson named the site Cape Denison, after the tobacco and newspaper magnate expedition backer, and the bay it faced onto, Commonwealth Bay, because Australia still lay 120 years away from becoming a republic. If we reach 2032 and nothing comes of this prediction, I'll be both surprised and disappointed. As with still giving Wilkes geographical credibility by maintaining the connection between his name and the region to the east, Mawson noted Commonwealth Bay as lying in a daily land, the name given the region by de Montdevere, celebrating his long-suffering wife, Adelaide, and in doing so, Mawson caused further headaches for successive cohorts of British and Australian bureaucrats. The dearth of bare rock sighted in the transit westward concerned Mawson. Where he expected the coast to offer similar landing opportunities to those afforded at Cape Adair and the shores of Robertson Bay, he instead found glacial coverage far more consistent than anything his experiences in the Ross Sea prepared him for, forcing a rethink on the number of bases he could expect to establish. Instead of the originally planned three continental bases, the expedition would use Cape Denison as its main base, consolidating it with one of the proposed auxiliary bases, and Wilde would head further west on the Aurora to establish a second base from which to send sledging forays. The main base company comprised Mawson, Robert Bage, Frank Bickerton, John Close, 
Percy Carell, Walter Hannum, Alfred Hodgman, John Hunter, Frank Hurley, Charles Lazeron, Cecil Madigan, Dr. Archibald MacLean, Dr. Xavier Mertz, Herbert Murphy, Belgrave Ninnis, Frank Stilwell, Eric Webb, and Dr. Leslie Wetter. The Far Western Party comprised Frank Wilde, George Dovers, Charles Harrison, Charles Hoadley, Dr. Sidney Jones, Alexander Kennedy, Morton Moyes, and Andrew Watson. A longboat carried a party ashore, the first people to set foot on the continent anywhere between Cape Adair and the Gaussberg. They found a well-protected harbour and the rocky expanse was backed by a crevasse-free glacial footing that would allow sledging access to the plateau. Over 11 days, 29 dogs, 23 tonnes of coal, the two radio masts and the attendant generator and radio set, the Nunna plane, the 19 men and enough food to feed that lot and enough wood to house them, and the magnetician's huts, went ashore, the twice-repaired motor launch towing the two longboats from ship to shore and back. The heavy antenna masts and much of the hut timber were towed ashore as rafts, assembled alongside the ship, occasional dunkings in the near-freezing seawater making the occupation an unpopular one. Sunny, quiet spells alternating with sudden gales characterised the offloading, and at one point the motor launch was in danger of running up a rocky shore in big waves. Prior to going on the Aurora's davits after a hard day's shuttling, with the rudder already shipped, the launch broke its painter. With Bickerton trying to coax the motor, swamped by seawater and unwilling to start, into some form of life, and Hunter working the pump to keep them afloat, Wetter rigged a jury rudder. The engine responded to Bickerton's ministrations, and the unlucky but lucky boat returned to the mothership after a tense few minutes. On two occasions, severe winds from the south curtailed the ship-to-shore transferrals for two days, those ashore seeing this out in their tents, or later in an ad hoc hut comprising benzene tins and planks, while Captain Davis stood off to keep his ship out of danger. The wild winds of the storm revealed the reason for Cape Denison's dearth of snow. Anything that wasn't heavy or well nailed down blew out to sea. The snow didn't stand much chance of sticking around. An unusual feature of these spells of dry, persistent strong winds was that the sky remained blue throughout the blow, because the winds were catabatic, caused by vertical temperature gradients in the atmosphere, more so than horizontal ones, and therefore lacking the clouds and precipitation often associated with other fronts and pressure gradients moving across a landscape. On the 19th of January, Davis made ready to carry on to the west. Gathered in the wardroom, the wintering parties and the ship's officers drank a toast to Wilkes and de Vere, hooking into one of the bottles of Madeira donated by John Buchanan. The motor launch made its final ferry service, towing the main base party ashore in one of the longboats, which then stayed at Cape Denison as a local marine runabout before the motor launch was hoisted on its davits as the Aurora headed west the shore party and the ship's crew cheering one another at the parting. And that's where we'll leave the Australasian Antarctic expedition for now. There's some business afoot as warrants our attention. A couple of months ago, listener Matty Jordan got in touch to let me know he's enjoying the series and to pick my brain about project topics that might help him get a foot in the door with the Canterbury University Antarctic Studies course. 
Matty's experience of Antarctica came through a voyage to the Antarctic Peninsula, and, as is the case with so many other visitors, myself included, visiting the ice only makes you want to visit the ice more. I provided what information I could that I thought might link his engineering background to the opportunities the course provides, and encouraged him to get in touch with the folks at Antarctica New Zealand, as they would be able to put him in touch with engineers, who could give him greater insight into the avenues he was looking to head down. Matty's correspondence gave me the kick up the arse I needed to revamp my resume and fire it off to Antarctic tourism operators, along mooted but to that point never acted on idea that I'd idly figured might help me through the summer holiday period, when bookings for my science education services are at a low ebb because everyone's down the beach getting sunburnt instead of hiring scientists and science communicators. I heard back from a couple of organisations with a thanks but we're full, and was resigned to another financially fraught December and January, when an email arrived inviting me to connect with the staff manager for a chat. That chat went well, and led to two further, more formal interviews, in which I made a presentation about Otto Nordenhjold, and answered questions about what wildlife I would expect to find around the Antarctic Peninsula in the summer months. I recently headed into Melbourne for a seafarer's medical, and then headed to Launceston in Tasmania to renew my sea safety training at the Australian Maritime College. And that's where the awesomeitude of Ice Coffee listeners comes into my story. After putting out a call for financial help to get me to Tassie and through the course, Rod, Emily, Brian, Bruce, Andrew, Kate, Brian in New Zealand, Alex, Gray, Eric, James, Lucy and Coops came to the party with their hard-earned coin and helped me out, and I find myself heartened and humbled. I'm looking forward to teaming up with a friend who knows the ins and outs of recording music and putting together the album I promised as the carrot for your support. The stick, comprising the fact that I tend to fall off things, bang my head on other things or just generally catch fire unless I've been given the appropriate safety training. I'm glad I didn't incorporate some sort of deductive option to the fundraising effort to account for people who want me to endanger myself more than the current crop of scars and divots already recount. In a sweet coda that brings us full circle, Matty got in touch a couple of weeks ago to let me know that he applied for and landed a two-year contract with Antarctica New Zealand as assistant project manager on a redevelopment of Scott Base. At the time, I didn't know if my interviews would lead to a contract offer, and so congratulated him and tried not to get too excited about my prospects in case it all came to nothing. The morning that I opened my email and found my golden ticket to the chocolate factory will long be remembered in my home, coinciding as it did with my son getting a letter from his hero, David Attenborough. So there were some big grins and much strutting that day. Maddie was among the first people I wrote to, letting him know what his correspondence had helped kick off and he'll be heading back to the ice in an area where I had my first taste of Antarctica, and at the same time as I head back to the ice where he had his first taste. I hope our paths one day bring us closer together than the opposite sides of a large continent, as I feel I owe that listener a coffee. So, with that glimpse behind the 1970s era Doctor Who set that has been my dive hut for the past four years out of the way, I'll get back to my brew. I don't know what my summer employers might make of the swearing, the blunt references to bodily functions, and the snarling, toasty bitterness towards my old DS that my podcast comprises, and so I'm leaving them out of the picture for now, 
and won't be pushing my digital audio wares on the people I encounter in my travels, but I will be taking my recorder with me, and you can expect some more varied landscapes in future episodes. I'm also hoping to snag some face-to-face interviews with other Antarctic devotees. While some style and content changes lie in the offing, I hope the standard of the meandering, self-indulgent content you've become accustomed to hearing from me won't miss a beat. I'm pretty sure I can be obsessive and digressional in a penguin rookery as readily as I am in my pretend dive hut. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. I shall wear it at all times. Take care and appreciate your coffee.